Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? Know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, face, and I'll say it to you now. Come down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh, Mike David here with Kieran Murphy. Hello there, Ron. Uh, hi, Kieran. And no, there's no Ken here. This is the bad news. I've got to give it to you straight away. No Ken today. There's nothing but bad about that, I have to say. But mm. the good news is that I've no doubt, right at this moment, he's got his head buried in the George Mendes book he mentioned last week. A stunning piece of self-glorification that makes John the Baptist seem like a searing, introspective confessional by comparison. So next week's podcast will be littered with Mendez anecdotes, complete with George Mendez's incredible, deep, beautiful eyes mm. that a, a rich professional footballer can't help but gaze into and want to give him loads of money. They set him apart from the rest of humanity <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah, something the like that. first yeah. page of that book. Oh, I just want to hear, I want to be on holidays with Ken just to be reading the book with him. I, I just want to be on holidays with Ken, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've never, just, never well, been on work-related holidays. Trips, we, we've been on trips, trips with Ken. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think anyone would appreciate us calling them holidays. No. But, uh, I mean, he's, he's uh, a willing... Travel companion um, likes to spend some time to himself. I think that would be a fair summation of to the beat of his own drum and all. He does see uh, or on work related. Yeah, that's a, just a, a got to keep adding that in there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, I mean he, he does see um, he enjoys um, conversation, but he also enjoys silence. Yeah, uh, solitude, uh, alone time. He likes to put in a lot of alone time. And that's fine. He likes to travel with others so that he can then spend a when lot the of time. When the time comes when he's ready to talk to those people that they're close by. <laughs> but, you know, he, he doesn't need to sign up for anything more than that. Many, many times I've been on a train with Ken where he, not only does he sit in a separate seat, he, he often likes to <laughs> sit a couple of carriages away. Just, to, yeah. just to, He'll come down, he might come down for a chat at some point, but largely. Yeah, usually yeah. on the way to the bathroom. Anyway, I mentioned on our opening podcast today, uh, today yeah, my long day of sports watching yesterday. Roughly 19 hours between the start of the tennis and the end of the Super Bowl. Yeah. I know you, you looked at me, you were a bit worried for me and you thought I looked, I had a bit of a pasty complexion. But don't worry about it. I did leave the house at one point. I'm not a total weirdo. Yeah, no, I drove to the Aviva Stadium to attend the Martin O'Neill press conference. <laughs> well, that's good. That was just, on around four. Just to clear your head. Yeah, you I had to clear my head there. Listen to some, uh, listen to an uh, esteemed international manager talk mm. about, talk about not a lot, to be honest. It was one of those press conferences about nothing uh, newsy. It was to announce an FAI partnership with Spar. There's no game on the immediate horizon. Huge no. matches coming up. Poland, Scotland, and the friendly with England. They are two months away, though. Yeah, they are a couple of months away. There's no real news. At one stage in the press conference, 
he was asked about James McCarthy, and he said, "Well, you know, I wouldn't. Well, I don't even know what I should say here because Roberto Martinez uh, seems to think that James James McCarthy got injured playing international football. Sure, he's played one game for us in the last eighteen mm. months, and people were thinking, ooh, that's a little bit spiky.'" So somebody came back to it later on, said, "Just to take you up on what you said about Martinez," and Martin O'Neill said, "Oh, sorry about that. No, I was, I was just joking." It's just joking. So it was. It was one of those ones where yeah. even the stuff that looked like it was going to get edgy yeah, didn't. Yeah. But there was a point of interest, and that was Roy Keane, as always, because Keane had his uh, latest altercation. This one with the taxi driver. Mm. Uh, was it in Manchester? Was it somewhere near where it was? Altrincham. Yeah. Okay, that sounds about right. Uh, You'll have read about it over the weekend. Somewhere glamorous, anyway. aren't you? And just to, before, yeah, before we play this, well, actually, Altrincham, I think, is pretty. Is that that a leafy suburb? No. Listen, we're, 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 yeah. We're, God, who cares? It, it sounds terrible. This, Sorry, all, all of our Ultramium listeners. The, uh, just to put this clip in context so you get the gag that O'Neill's about to go with here. A reporter subsequently after the Keane incident tried to doorstep Keane and this reporter says that he got a bit of a mouthful of abuse from Roy Keane who, who again, he tried to doorstep. Anyway, this is Martin O'Neill yesterday. I doorstepped him, you know. <laughs> and I just slammed it in my bleep, bleep face and then I opened it up again. He was really fine. He said, is it you? And I said, it is. He's fine. At the moment, After that conversation, can't tell you. So at the moment, you're, you're happy for Roy to... Absolutely. Absolutely. I enjoy it. I enjoy his company. Do you know what? I beg you, it'll not be the only altercation. He'll be in again between now and... Uh, what shall I do? Shall I give him... I'd say give him to next weekend. So there you go. That's the general tone of it. He came in armed. He came in ready. He was asked an innocuous question before the Keane stuff came up about, I can't remember what it was. Mm. And his response was, oh, I've lost my bet with Peter. That's Peter Sherrard, the communications manager. I thought you were going to ask about Keane straight away. So he even brought up, he would, it's, it was easy, the best way to approach this mm. because of all the Keane issues. I wouldn't say this is necessarily the most serious one. It's another one on top of another, uh, on top of a, a bunch of other um, yeah, I mean, you might as well try and, you know, spike it with humour, you know. Particularly at a press conference, that does work, though, because what happens is you're at that, those things, you're, everyone's waiting for something to happen. And once it happens, then, well, well they've gone there. This so. humour will translate really well onto print. Uh, it doesn't really, though. Yeah. Um, but the the atmosphere in the room is lightened somewhat, if nothing else. Evan Malone was there, too, for the Irish Times. He's going to be with us shortly. And he'll stick around for our chat with John Bruin on Chelsea, Manchester City. We're also going to talk to Gabriele Mercotti about plans for AC Milan to leave the San Siro and move to a ground of their own, a ground with a much smaller capacity. They had a pretty shocking crowd for their game against Parma at the weekend, 20-something thousand. Uh, sh- yeah. Listen, I haven't I haven't watched Italian football since the mid nineties, but surely this is a top of the table clash now. <laughs> AC Milan Parma. Oh, that was a game. That was a game and a half back then. Yeah. Possible fixtures that you can imagine. Is Espria still playing? That I, still playing for Parma? Did I just say that was a game and a half back then? Yeah, you did. That was actually, a serious yeah. football. Yeah. That laughter. That laughter is here. <laughs> that was a game and a half. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, uh, you do actually think back. It, for some reason, uh, an era of football uh, in a country. You know, in a particular country that is glamorized out of all recognition for people in this country and in England, I think. Because there was the Syria Monday Night Highlights show on RTE for a few years. And then there was, of course, Gazette of Football Italia, which lasted a couple of more years after that. And the live coverage. On Channel 4. Oh, and Channel the live 4. coverage. Uh, Ray Wilkins, good evening, Peter. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Every single Sunday, starting his co- uh, commentaries with that. 
Um, but I mean, you know, Nestor Cincini, Hernan Hernan Crespo, Thomas Brolin, the aforementioned Espria, Cannavaro, uh, Gianluigi Buffon played for them. I found out there two minutes ago. I had actually this is all just Parma you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, not the, to mention all the Milan legends. All the, of the well, game in fairness, that Milan team was actually yeah. totally ridiculous. But uh, times have changed. Yeah, and they have changed. It like the crowds are, are reacting too well in recent years. So we'll get to Gabrielli a little bit later on that. But Emma Malone is in studio now. Emma, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for popping into us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We were uh, we met each, other, met each other, I should say, yesterday at Martin O'Neill's press conference, um, which is a funny one in that. A couple of days beforehand, as seems to happen, the timing of these Roy Keane controversies yeah. seems to just always seems to happen around the time that Martin O'Neill is going to be talking to the media. But he was—he uh, seemed quite relaxed about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, he, he well, I was going to say he always seems relaxed about it, but he doesn't like he didn't before the USA game uh, when he was being questioned about uh, Keane's press conference the previous day, which had, had descended into a fair amount of acrimony uh, and, and really had to be cut short. Uh, that was around the time that he might have been moving to Celtic, was that? Uh, oh, sorry, no, no, oh, no, it was much more recently than course, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was about him being asked, actually, as 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 O'Neill was yesterday. It's a kind of slightly postmodern kind of thing about being asked by us whether us having to. Ask ask questions about him all the time is a distraction oh, yeah, yeah. and in that instance the way it was phrased was is it a distraction to Martin O'Neill and he reacted badly to the idea that he was being you know asked uh, to put you know something in, in O'Neill's mouth about him uh, it, it, it was an awkward moment I mean the way it was phrased everything like that but boy did he react badly to it and then we moved on I think afterwards to the uh, is it Frank Gillespie is his name the, yeah. uh, the, the incident uh, in the team hotel uh, but, but things were already on a pretty dramatic uh, downward slope by then so uh, uh, you know it, it, it was quite acrimonious and um, and, and O'Neill the next day when he was asked about it then I think you know just came across more like as fed up than anything else um, uh, he didn't really take the questioning well and uh, seemed cheesed off but more with us than, than with Roy Keane well this one yesterday maybe there were a couple of reasons why he might have been a bit yeah. more relaxed about things one that he had a bit of time to think about it and there yeah. wasn't it wasn't around a game time it wasn't it wasn't distracting from anything in particular in fact there wasn't really a huge amount to talk uh, about yesterday besides uh, Roy yeah Keane. I think that's a big part of it I think uh, he would have known um, when uh, when he agreed to come in for this it was a spar launch spar coming on board as sponsors of the FAI and I think when he would have agreed to come in that he would have known that it would have been kind of a you know an easy enough gig uh, from the point of view of there not being anything on I think there is that I mean it goes back to the heart of the question of whether whether Keane and his you know whatever you want to call them antics or episodes or activities uh, are are a distraction. Well, I think whatever chance there is that they're a distraction in the build up to a game. You know, even the fact that the press is dominated by it and uh, the questions at, at the press conferences are dominated by Keane. Uh, I think on a day like today, day like yesterday, you know, you could see O'Neill talks about enjoying Keane, and yesterday he looked almost like he enjoyed. Oh yeah, when he brought it up, about. yeah, he brought it up yeah. himself, and yeah. he was happy to stay on it until it got moved away as yeah absolutely well well he moved it away himself uh, rather noticeably uh, in in uh, actually later on in the uh, in the, um, the in daily, the, in the daily uh, newspapers where where he moved on to um, the way an interview he'd uh, given to the BBC a couple of weeks ago had been covered and a suggestion in particular that he'd used the, f- the word forlorn um, in relation to uh, his attitude towards his job when he said what he'd actually said was full on and uh, and that he'd been misquoted <laughs> and so a journalist had to uh, 
uh, apologise for that. Uh, it, I actually been realised. It's funny. I, I remember listening to the interview at the time to see whether there was anything kind of interesting in it, and not really thinking that there was. But he was asked about at the time about his um, well, the standard question, which we've asked a lot, and 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 he certainly gets asked a lot when he goes on the the BBC, and they're like, does he miss the day to day activity with, with players? And he says the same thing every time, which is that he does. That he's frustrated by the fact that the next game doesn't come along, that he doesn't get enough time on the training ground to really shape things and work with players, uh, which is you know well yeah it's amongst the many things that he, you know I think he, he'd like to have a, a greater role in uh, with his squad um, but really ultimately he was sort of saying that uh, you know but there's other aspects to it a lot of going to watch games to see how players are getting on and he mentioned the idea of being brought back here to do sort of corporate gigs I mean he, he said suggested yesterday that he had done a, a corporate gig with Spar a few months back and that that had contributed to them coming on board as a sponsor uh, and so I think he was kind of making the general point that you know as you might put it, he wasn't sitting around scratching his arse, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, but I, I had heard other people suggest that this was a kind of, that, that he'd been quite negative about the job. And, uh, and he, and he, want, yes, he wanted to clarify he generally that, but also specifically about this, uh, about this uh, quote. The tone he took yesterday, the jokey tone, which he does quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, he has, a, a, I suppose, not a, a strange enough sort of sense of humour in some ways, but uh, he seemed to... Corny, I think, is the word you're... you're yeah, 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 maybe yeah, a little a lot, bit. A lot of it's very corny, and, but, uh, and, and he enjoys that. But although occasionally it's not entirely clear when he's joking, and you think you have... A line, and then ten minutes later, he explains on, it. Yeah, there was a little bit back, of that yesterday. Yeah. But the fact that he he was the one who brought up the the Keane incident yesterday, he made a couple of jokes about that. He joked that he doorstepped Roy Keane. Yeah, if people aren't, don't know that angle to the story, a, a journalist, I think it, was a, it could have been a mirror journalist, yeah. doorstep Keane and, and seemed surprised that Keane wasn't too happy about that. But so only made a joke out of this, a joke out of that, a joke out of the other. In a way, is that a, quite a clever media strategy in that he's taking this thing if he if he comes along to something yesterday. Where there's not a huge amount to talk about, and people ask him about Keane, and he gets a bit defensive over it. Then, yeah, that I think more that was what happened, at, as I say, at the USA pre-match press conference. That he did get kind of quite edgy about it. Uh, he was clearly kind of irritated by having to deal with this yet again, um, and uh, and that did kind of result in a sort of negative slant to the uh, to the coverage of it. Yeah, yesterday, absolutely. I mean, he laughed the whole thing off. I think by and large, he, he interestingly, and, and there was some debate amongst ourselves afterwards about the uh, how much you know weight or significance you attach to particular aspects of what he said yesterday. But interestingly, yesterday, he did note that he kind of couldn't say, I think was the phrase he used, he couldn't say it, it wasn't an issue for him or something to that effect. Um, and he did say that, uh, you know, the thing with Keane is that there's all these events and at some point one of them might get out of hand and that that would be important for him. You know, that, and, and it's a concern in some way that one of them might, you know, be out of hand. But he was, you know, kind of laughing at the idea that he'd had an altercation with a taxi man, and that essentially saying uh, "mountain of molehill" was the was the phrase he used. Just saying that, really, at this stage, this sort of stuff doesn't bother him. That that's that that Keane is has that fractious side to him. That that's part of the package you get. That when he hired him, he always knew that. Combined with the level of media interest in him, so there was going to be a lot of reports like this, and he doesn't seem bothered. In fact, I mean, going back to the whole kind of difference between the club versus country sort of management job. I genuinely think he he thinks it kind of makes the whole gig more interesting. Really? Yeah, 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 I I really do think so. I think he said it. He said it. He said it that that when he was appointed, when he was, or or very shortly after, when he said he was going to appoint um, Roy Keane as his assistant, just something about it. There was a kind of the proverbial twinkle in his eye, and I think he just thought this will this will just liven the whole thing up. Yeah, that November to uh, whatever it is, March the twenty ninth. Thing. I mean, that's a pretty long stretch. You could say that this Keane incident actually happened 
exactly in, uh, at the midway That's point right. between the two games, just to <coughs> make sure that everyone, just keep everyone interested in the, the whole situation. O'Neill's point of view, and it seems to be that as long as it's nothing related to the players, yeah. he consistently says, I said it again yesterday, that if you ask a player, if you, if you get Seamus Coleman on the, on the phone today and you ask him what does he think of this I don't think Seamus Coleman is going to be too worried that yeah. there's some altercation with the taxi driver where it would bother O'Neill is if there were the bust ups bust up is always the word used in yeah. association, but if there was some sort of a, a training ground bust up I guess is where it becomes an well there issue. has been a team hotel bust up yeah. essentially I mean I know it didn't involve the players but it's it's very close to home in terms of uh, the players who were there <clears throat> now Keane seems to have been an entirely innocent party in that and uh, and seems to have kind of you know tried to draw a line under it very quickly by, by calling the guards himself where does this one rank then in the in the distractions the fact that he's uh, well, the distraction pantheon yeah. yeah yeah I think that the most significant distraction probably was when he was being linked with, with Celtic, which again he was entirely entitled to be, and he wasn't in the wrong there in any way. He was he, he was being sounded out and ultimately offered a job that he was interested in taking, um, but it wasn't offered on the terms that he that he wanted. Um, O'Neill was surprisingly open about that, but there were games going on at the time, primarily a, a friendly with uh, Italy, and um, and it did kind of it had to distract from the the work that they were doing with the players on the pitch, but. The autobiography, I suppose. The autobiography, of course. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. That. That, to that, be that, fair, yeah. yeah that, that was all. And, that was all in and around <coughs> the Frank Gillespie. Uh, we, I kind of have that. Uh, yeah. in, in, well, it was a gap in time. Yeah. I mean, they were linked in the sense that Gillespie was trying to get him to sign the the autobiography sure, or whatever. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. I think and the fact I, that, I, that was planned as well. That absolutely. The, that was, and you know, O'Neill uh, acknowledged afterwards that had they had they slipped up, you know, uh, they had the Gibraltar game at the at the end of that at the end of that week. That was first one up uh, that had there been any sort of cock up there that they were they were going to have problems they, it was going to be thrown back in their mm. faces that um, that the Keen uh, biography uh, uh, launch had uh, had had an effect now Keen in his way you know uh, as he always is completely and utterly dismissive you know contemptuous when, when we asked him about this of the idea and yet you know you can't get away from the impression I think we talked that day out of the launch you can't get away from the impression that if Ferguson you know had launched a biography in the build up to a big game um, yeah. uh, while he was at Manchester United or if Mick McCarthy had launched a biography in the, in, in the launch uh, build up to an Ireland game that he would have been outraged you the, know, the, the tone of voice would have been exactly the same, yeah. Only with an entirely different, uh, you know. He would say, exactly. Yeah, how could it not be a distraction? Exactly, you know, exactly. You know. and, Ferguson releases and you a book read, and two you... days before a Champions League semi-final. How's, that's not yeah, a distraction. Yeah. Hold on, is that a yeah. full Roy Keane impression? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I didn't. No, I didn't go for the, the cork tone only. a little bit, but not the so much tone, the accent, but not yeah. the cork. Yeah. yeah, but you absolutely, and you, you see the level of kind of detail that goes into preparing for these games. You read about the work that they do with the players uh, on the opposition, on you know coping with things on uh, you know on the training ground uh, directly, uh, coping with what the uh, team might do or what we're supposed to be doing about what goes on behind the scenes, the amount of time that gets taken up by this. And that day Keane was spending, you know, four hours, five hours, whatever it was, doing uh, media interviews. And then the pair of them, as I remember it, were going off to some sort of corporate gig uh, straight from that to do another kind of hour or two to, to, yeah. uh, of talking. Um, that's a full day. It was on. It was it the Thursday before the game. It was. Mm. It was remarkable timing. So look, you have those sort of things in terms of what he does. <laughs> what he does in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a, you know parking space by a cash machine in Altrincham on you know uh, you know in, in the middle of this huge gap. I mean, it is. It's the first time this gap has ever been this long. It's, yeah. It's such a um, because the February uh, date is essentially gone now. Um. Uh. It, it, I, I presume O'Neill just thinks good luck to him. You know. 
it's, it's very much his own business. He was also asked, O'Neill, about the... Uh, the good point is we've gotten a few of the away games out of the, the way. Yeah. A lot of home matches coming and the idea of a, a fortress being made at the Aviva Stadium, which it hasn't been. There have been pockets sure. of good games, yeah. decent atmospheres here and there for, for particular games, but... Um, by and large, I don't, there's always a, a bit of a nostalgic element to this, as though every game in the old Lands End Road was a seething cauldron of hate for the opposition team, which was not necessarily the case a lot of the time. But he did yeah. seem quite genuine in the idea that, and he came back to it a couple of times, that he does want, he doesn't know what he can do to help it, but he does want the supporters to. Yeah, he did. I, I think it was interesting that, he, as you say, he acknowledged it wasn't simply about filling the place, you know, getting people to shell out the money and come along, that, you know, the team needed to do something to infuse the crowd, as he put it. And, and that's certainly true. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out for the FAI. They they have, you know, a, a variety now of ticket packages. I mean, when you go back to the old Lansdowne Road, the 33,000 seats, essentially they were virtually all gone before you started. Uh, a lot of people on kind of block booking schemes, booking through clubs, everything like that. There was this great sense that if you didn't go to every game, then when the Germany game came around or the France game came around or whatever, you wouldn't be in the stadium. You're going to have real problems getting in. Now there's a real sense that you know, there's no, no need to go to any of them because, you know, when the Germany game comes around, at a squeak, it might you might have to go a little bit out of your way, but ultimately you'll get a ticket, as, as I think everybody has. I mean, there's been one or two games there have notionally sold out, but I don't think there's, I don't think I've ever met anyone, you know, really put a bit of effort into it, hasn't been able to get a get a ticket for the big games. And that's a problem for them now. Now, they have um, a very important Scotland game coming up, a very important uh, Poland game coming up, and a very attractive um, England-friendly, you know, and, and they're trying to maximise their revenues from the those games, which is entirely understandable, but they've put the ticket prices back up for the Poland game. The packages for those games, uh, if you buy the three of them or whatever, are more expensive, and it's going to be interesting to see how that goes for them. Uh, they, they need to fill the ground, but they need to fill in a sense, I mean, you know, you don't want to be kind of rating the the fans or whatever but what they've been doing is heavily discounting tickets giving them you know cheap or or in some cases free to schoolboy clubs and stuff like that that's, that's nice there's a lot of positives around about that I think I think the Gibraltar game I don't think I've ever it, it was a bit like you know do you remember watching schoolboy internationals on on BBC and then the, <laughs> just the tone of uh, the tone of the cheering the actual was noise several, in the stadium yeah, yeah several octaves higher yeah. you know it's like <laughs> sure. they'd let a lot of, lot of child choirs in um, and so they, they kind of need to get back I think, you know, ideally to a slightly more hardcore fan who's going to kind of really get behind the team who kind of really appreciates it's what lot, it, It's a what lot to it ask though, probably. And there's a specific issue with the it Poland is. game there yeah. in that I'm sure they could fill the game out for the Poland match, but it would be at least 40 or 45% full of uh, Polish supporters if they really yeah, wanted to do absolutely. that how many tickets do they want going in the absolutely. hands of the and, and, and I think that's probably played a part in their thinking of trying to bundle tickets you know that uh, you know your your average Pole isn't going to want to then be uh, at the at the Ireland-Scotland game or uh, they, they, the, uh, the the great significance of the uh, of an Ireland-England friendly will happily pass them by you know <laughs> so uh, so yeah it is an issue for them and it's going to be interesting to see what, what the crowd is like on that night but, but potentially it's important for them you know uh, there has been an improvement probably in the way the team plays but it hasn't been the sort of improvement that's going to have people flocking back and I think the problem for the FAI and for the team generally and everybody associated with it is that you know in the wake of, of, of the crash here when money got tight and people probably reluctantly gave up their tickets to see Ireland play then they kind of realise that life goes on, you know, and, uh, and you can probably get away with that. All right, well, Emmett, stick with us for this next bit because we're going to talk about the big game of the weekend, which turned out to be a bit of a non-event. Uh, John Bruin is ready to chat about it. John, why so little spark, do you think, at uh, Stamford Bridge? I think there's a, there's a few factors to that. Um, I think 
I think that firstly you've got to say that a draw probably suited both teams. Obviously Chelsea a little bit more. But not the end of the world for Manchester City to draw at their closest rivals either. And I suppose a secondary factor was the that both teams were a little underpowered. Um, no Yaya Torre for Manchester City, obviously. Though another player I think they really do miss at the moment is Sami Nasri, who I think has had an excellent season up until he got his injury. And then, obviously, Chelsea were missing the thrust and whatever else that he brings to the game of Diego Costa and a bit of Cesc Fabregas' ability to uh, create chances for, for their forwards. Um, and I also think that... Uh, it actually started a little more open than uh, I expected. I thought it was going to be the type of pitch battle it was in the second half. Um, and I think the strange thing was that Chelsea's goal, uh, scored by Remy, which is a great move, it was almost as if that wasn't part of the plan. Very strange that they almost sat back on that and then conceded early and then seemed almost happier to be level with City than they did leading them. Very strange uh, way to play it, but Jose Mourinho, we don't actually know whether he was happy with that or not, do we? No, we don't. Uh, and Sky were trying to put a brave face on the fact that he was blackballing them, but uh, I don't know how long that's going to go on and how he can be disciplined. But the the, the rival when we're looking forward to these big games, you, you you do need a sense of rivalry as well. I don't know if that's something that's still missing between these two, uh, particularly because Man City are so new to the top table. It seems as though even the Frank Lampard cameo, if Lampard had arrived at Stamford Bridge in a Liverpool jersey, for example. I can't imagine the, the fans being quite so generous. Well, that's very true, yeah. I mean, City... I mean, it, is, it was 2008 that Manchester City became a force in English football, so it's not like it was just yesterday. But there is still something that slightly... I hesitate to use the word plastic. That's probably a little unfair. But there's still something... That still it doesn't fit them as a big club. I think maybe that's something to do with the fact that Manchester United are in the same city. I don't know. I mean, as as regard the Lampard thing, interesting. I mean, uh, the Chelsea press box. You're pretty near the action. You're you're in amongst the fans, and there did seem to be a sort of civil war between the fans over the Lampard thing. Yeah. Uh, the younger generation, uh, some of them decided that. He was Judas and he had, was shameless and all the rest of it. But they were shouted down by the older Chelsea heads and it was a bit of a row, rather entertaining uh, to the right of us where we were sat. It was actually more entertaining than what was going on in the pitch, on the pitch in front of us, actually. Yeah, well, the, just on City, uh, whatever mm. about the, the specifics on Lampard, I don't know if plastic is the right word necessarily. I mean, they've won two league titles in the last three years, but there doesn't seem to be any sense of authority about them, that they're going to go to Chelsea a week in Chelsea. They're going to do whatever they need to do to get the win that will that will catapult them closer to the, or move them closer to the top of the table. It seems almost as though the self-confidence that should be there from winning two league titles doesn't seem to exist. I, I, I think, though, the problem, well, you know, John has already mentioned the obvious factor that Yaya Torre and Aguero are gone, and those are two huge, or sorry, Aguero played, but he doesn't look great at the moment. He's he what, four, four matches back after injury, five matches, and uh, and, he, and he really hasn't hit form again. Yaya Torre is completely missing, and these are two players who, you know, drive the team forward, who routinely, you know, prove to be match winners for them. And the state were enormous uh, on the downside for them if they lost. I mean, you know, this Chelsea team 
It's It's been generally pretty good at times, remarkably impressive, but occasionally very poor as the, the Bradford and Spurs games have shown. And if you're a city looking at this, you're kind of thinking if we don't lose this, the title is, is still there for us. You know, that this Chelsea team can drop points and we, and we can win this title elsewhere. But if we lose this game, it's over. You know, there's there's no way we're making up eight points on, on, on a Jose Mourinho But if you're, gonna, if you're looking at the team that Chelsea had out there yeah. you're never going to get a better chance to no that's true and they, and they look tired and you know and yet their goal came ultimately really from a, a Courtois mistake and you know I mean certainly he had a, a very good opportunity to clear danger and, and blew it pretty badly um, yeah no they, they weren't impressive they, they weren't they weren't themselves and I, and I take your point that they kind of don't have the sort of authority you'd expect them to have at this stage after 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 a couple of league titles you see it in Europe obviously as well on, on a uh, consistent basis John that they don't seem to don't seem to be. A, I don't know if authoritative is the right word, but they don't seem to carry themselves in the way that you would think. I don't know if you agree with that. Maybe this is unfair because they were going away to Chelsea after all. But it just seems like it was another example of maybe just something that's missing in their personality. Well, I think part of the fact is um, they're still Manchester City, and uh, you, going back to that thing I was saying before, I do agree with you. Plastic's the wrong word. There's still something about the, the, the club that. There's almost like a sense of disbelief there. I think when you talk about the European thing, this season might actually have changed matters there. I think they've waited for a big European night and actually had two this season, beating Bayern Munich, winning in Rome. I think that might give them a sense of belief. How they get on against Barcelona, I don't know, but I would hope and expect that they probably make a better fist of it than they did last season when... Uh, I went to the home game with that and it, it was almost as if they were just happy to be playing against them and it was almost an exhibition game. Um, the thing is, the City have a group of players who have been there and done that in English football. Um, Manuel Pellegrini said something after the game, which was, uh, I've seen it described as something of an afterthought, but if you look at it, uh, he said if, if City need to get to 90 points, which he thinks will win the title, they've got to win 14 from 15 games, which he thinks they're capable of doing. So I suppose, does he think that just drawing that game sets him up for the rest of the season and they've got their most difficult fixture out of the way? Or maybe Pellegrini shares that that confidence in his team that, well, maybe maybe we don't do. Um, and there's something about City that I agree... Isn't it strange that they've won two titles in three years, yet they really don't look like or seem like the type of team that are going to build some kind of dynasty in English football? The the only thing I'd say to that is, I I thought, by and large, they dominated that game the other day. They they dominated the game at Chelsea, having having looked second best to them earlier in the season. Both teams kind of either missing players or teams below, players below form. They limited Chelsea to a goal against uh, the run of play and very, very, very few serious chances after that. And really, on another day, had Silva or Aguero really been, you know, on their game they probably would have won it. So in that sense, I don't think it's that much of a crisis. To tilt the whole team forward, that extra yard, to kind of really go for it, risks losing the game. And that, that I think, explains why why possibly they, they weren't more dominant Your on the day. Your inner Giovanni Trapattoni coming out there, Emmett. <laughs> That's uh, right. Hold, hold what God, we have. God help me. <laughs> uh, John, just on Mourinho, you mentioned him earlier, earlier there. Um, what was the general consensus on his refusal to speak to the media? Any sympathy at all, uh, sympathy at all among the, the media pack over there? Not especially, no. Um, I, I heard, I, I did hear one chap say that he thought that he'd been, uh, uh, Chelsea had been undergoing trial by television. Um, 
uh, there, there was actually quite a sorry sight of there was a guy sat next to me when I was uh, just working through the second piece I had to write off the game um, suddenly realised that Mourinho would not be coming out to speak uh, even though most of us have been told this at half time and then just stormed off saying well that's been a waste of my time then hasn't it and just left the, <laughs> left the press room in a huff um, I think I don't, what, what sympathy can you have for Mourinho in this in this regard? Um, he's, he's picking a fight with with Sky, uh, uh, picking a fight with one of their pundits in particular um, for something that Jamie Redknapp. I think it, it's the, wasn't it the phrase uh, "cost of crimes" that's written above, below yeah. a montage that uh, that Jamie Redknapp's speaking over. Now Jamie Redknapp said, and I think most people who aren't Chelsea fans share this view, that he thought that Diego Costa deliberately, uh, let's not call it a stamp, trod on uh, Emre Chan. I don't think, yeah, the, the, the deal with Chelsea seems to be that they don't like, and uh, this is what one of their uh, people was saying on, on Saturday, they don't like the way that the media questions Chelsea about refereeing decisions and some of the disciplinary issues that they have. I don't think that's any different to what has happened at other clubs um, in recent years. Mourinho doesn't make it easy for himself by blaming referees for for certain defeats that um, had nothing to do with them. I mean, go back to the New Year's Day game that Emmett mentioned when they lost to Spurs. That was blamed on a penalty decision that no one else in the yeah, in the press right. room could actually recall had happened. Um, it's, it's and the thing is, it's so transparent that this is some attempt to create a, a siege mentality. I mean, I even I think Ivanovic speaking after the game actually used the phrase siege mentality, didn't he? I mean, we've seen it all before. I don't think it speaks well of Mourinho that he does this type of thing. He can do. He actually suppose he can get fined by the Premier League for not for not speaking to us, but. What what does he seek to gain from from not speaking to us? I'm not sure. John Bruin, listen, great stuff. Thanks, Midian. Cheers. Yeah, just wanted to come in on that final point there, Emmett. Mm, yeah, I think uh, I, I I think that the pity of it is that Chelsea were playing so well over the first uh, half of the season, and and there wasn't this stuff going on, you know, and and, <laughs> and that now you know Mourinho seems to be acting like a you know a guy whose team has has got a goal up, you know, with uh, with 20 minutes to go, and now they're digging in, and and it's the pity it's a pity because Chelsea really looked like. You know they seem to be dispelling a lot of the the previous criticisms of of the team under Mourinho. Uh, they were playing a lot of exciting football, scoring a lot of goals, winning a lot of support from neutrals, and and Mourinho was carrying himself with a bit more, well, class, I guess. You know than than we've associated with, with, with the past, where everything has been sort of one giant kind of evil scheme to uh, to keep the team on on course. I mentioned the lack of a real bite yeah. to this rivalry between Manchester City and Chelsea mm. since they both made it to the top top of the game in recent years but you've actually experienced uh, yeah, the well, side of the right it, back. It's pretty historical at this stage. I mean, I lived over there in the late 80s, worked on the on the underground and uh, used to travel around a little bit because I'd free or very close to free travel uh, on the trains. Uh, but Chelsea was one of my local teams. I lived kind of in in, in, uh, in, in West London and uh, used to go down and see them a fair bit. Um, QPR were slightly closer. But at the time, Chelsea were in the old second division um, and I ended up uh, towards the towards the end of the season going to uh, Manchester for a game where um, Chelsea were playing City away and the winning team would definitely be promoted and if Chelsea won they would also win the old second division 
it was one of the strangest days of my life. I, uh, it was um, it was also the day that there was a cup quarter final between United and Forest, which Forest won, went on to Hillsborough, uh, right, where, yeah, where the disaster yeah. happened. Uh, sort of four sets of fans milling around uh, Manchester uh, City Centre in the one day. It was it was like a kind of crazy version of the Warriors that movie about uh, the, t- the the gang trying to get back uh, <laughs> yeah. home in New York City um, everywhere you went like you know you'd be walking down the road and um, some forest fans would run past you being chased by some Chelsea fans you know they'd all disappear <laughs> around a corner two minutes later the Chelsea fans would appear first then the forest fans then some City <laughs> fans behind them you know and then they all come back the other way with United fans uh, uh, leading the charge it was it was very odd um, uh, mostly in, in an entertaining way but sure. but, but with an undercurrent of violence at some stage some guys tried to jump the queue on me in the, in the taxi when I was about to hop in it to go out to, uh, to the main road and, uh, and a couple of their mates pulled them back and it was no one of those black cabs and uh, there was space for five people in it so I leaned back out and said uh, uh, look lads if you want to share it I'm, I'm going out to main road and uh, they just uh, all looked at me as one I went one and both main road Main road! <laughs> and there was a lot of expletives. And the taxi had to pull away with the door still swinging open and then running behind, kicking it as we what? went, you know? Uh, so out in the ground then, there was a, there was a, f- a fair bit of violence. Uh, Chelsea came from 2-0 down to win 3-2, one promotion, late late winner. A couple of Chelsea fans in front of me were sitting in. I'd bought a ticket for a fiver from a town outside. Uh, a couple of Chelsea fans just instinctively re- reacted and celebrated the, um, the, the, the winning goal. Had the lard beaten out of them by all the city city fans uh, sitting around them, including quite a few who I'd been sitting cheerfully chatting to beforehand, who seemed like some of the nicest guys I'd ever met. <laughs> Cops came in, lifted them out of it. Chelsea fans just thrown out, no action taken against anybody else. Now this this was pretty absolutely standard to, in the, any of the London games I went to at any stage, like the down that end, neck of the woods. Certainly the Chelsea games. 7,000, I think, was the smallest crowd. I was at a Stamford Bridge game, uh, Forest in some cup competition. A lot of hardcore nutcases. When you distill the Chelsea support down to that level, you're dealing with some really kind of some, some strange and, you know, socially challenged characters. But when I've gone back there or any of the other grounds in London over the last few years, you see a transformation, particularly at Chelsea because they've turned into this kind of globe-trotting, uh, internationally mm-hmm. successful and attractive club. And I think one of the last times I sat there, I had some Japanese tourists sitting next to me kind of asking me to explain the rules of the game to them, you know. <laughs> so that's where they've gone. I think City are on that journey as well. There's still a hardcore support there. There's still a core of support that kind of understand and appreciate and savour those rivalries. But there's a lot of people have come on board here to whom, you know, um, the, the Bill Shankly quotes about life and football would just seem a world away. Emmett, great to have you in. Thanks so much. It's been a so he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city... Knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sports important. Now, AC Milan beat Parma at the weekend in the San Siro, a match that in the 90s would have had the old stadium rocking and probably would have had a lot of us in Ireland watching it live as well in the the glory days, but only 24,000 fans bothered to turn up to this one, which explains why Milan might be leaving the San Siro and moving to a smaller stadium. Gabriele Marcotti joins us. Gabriele, is this move likely to happen, do you think? 
Well, I mean, the, the, there's two reasons. Yes, it's it's likely to happen in terms of, uh, you know, in in the modern game and with financial fair play and whatnot. You know, you need your own stadium to to control the revenues. Um, but is it is it likely to happen in in the short term? I don't know. Me and I do so much talking um, about new stadiums and buying Sancido and whatnot uh, that you just don't know. You would think that you know when you're owned by a former prime minister and one of the richest men in Europe and a guy who has a real estate empire, it would be easier to go off and uh, and build your own stadium the way other Italian clubs have managed to do. But um, uh, with these guys, you just don't know. So they would be moving to their own stadium, leaving Inter to do their own thing, maybe stay at the San Siro? Well, of course, Inter are also talking about their own stadium. Inter at least have like presented a, a plan for it. Um, you know, it's just, just, it's just an artist's rendition right now, a little bit like uh, Everton's new stadium or Liverpool's new stadium. But, um, you know, the, 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 everybody does a lot of talking. I think what they all want to do is they want the government to foot the bill or uh, the city of Milan, who owns San Siro, to come out and say, "Well, no, actually, why don't you stay here and we'll let you uh, we'll let you run the San Siro." I don't think the San Siro is actually um, a problem, uh, personally. Uh, now, obviously, if you have your own ground, you can um, you can control the, the retail better and you can generate more revenues. Um, but really, it's uh, you know they, they they've worked deals to. To, to basically take over the concessions, you know, they, they've got the club museums there. Yeah, you know, it's not, they could maybe build some more luxury boxes and do the, make money from the naming rights or whatever. But it's not a, you know, it's not, it's not a horrible stadium. In fact, it's a great stadium. Yeah. So um, I think a lot of this is is talk and try to get, trying to get a better deal, frankly. All right, so it sounds like it's not going to happen. I guess the other advantage to the possible, to, to moving, well, unless the fan base revolted against that move is that you could give the club maybe a bit of a shot in the arm in the sense that you build a stadium they're talking about a 48,000 capacity stadium you at least get close maybe to filling that out sometimes 24,000 people at the game against Parma in an 85,000 stadium sounds like it's pretty hard to build up any sort of match day atmosphere there yeah, I, the match day atmosphere is actually pretty good, even when the stadium's not that full, uh, because of the acoustics and the way the stadium's built. Obviously, there's no running track. Uh, you're you are pretty close to the pitch. Um, I, I mean, look, if Milan have a decent product, if they don't, you know, if they don't stink up the place, they don't have a problem. I think filling filling the stadium, you know, drawing uh, sixty thousand regularly. Um, the problems, I mean, they run into problems. You know, when there's no faith in the chief executive, uh, when when the team are doing badly, when, uh, when you know when the fans have basically had enough, uh, that's the real issue. You know, and that's not going to be solved uh, by you know you can move into the best stadium in the world, but uh, if if you bring the problems you had at your old ground with you, uh, people aren't going to show up. Gabriele, great to have you to chat about that. Thanks, man. My pleasure. All right, I never asked you at the start of the show, Murph. Have you been to the San Siro? Uh, would you believe I have one? Uh, I was there on a school trip with uh, St. Jarvis College in 1997. Uh, so AC Milan play Roma, uh, when Roma were going pretty well as well. And uh, it finished 3-2 to AC Milan. Uh, missed penalties, uh, penalties not given, penalties given, screamers, the whole lot. It was an absolutely amazing. 90, so what age were you? 
I was I was in second year, so I was fourteen. Okay, that's a great age. Yeah, it was amazing. Really, it was seriously wide eyed. Well, I'd be wide eyed now if I was going to the San Siro, although not if there were only twenty five thousand people there. Maybe. Yeah, but I'd like it, there was about sixty five thousand people there. I'd say it was like three quarters full, something like that, and it was amazing. It was absolutely brilliant. The atmosphere, the whole. You know, it's at that age you're just kind of pretty psyched to be at a, any sporting oh, event. Completely, but then you get to see those cool sort of spiral, uh, spirals around, yeah. where the sort of pillars on the outside that they have. The yeah, for whatever here. reason, again, it's like, as we were talking about earlier, it's the, the, that, the imagery of Italian football from that time is it, very evocative for people to, people of our age. So when we were walking up to San Siro, it wasn't like, you know, I wonder what the stadium's going to look like. We all knew exactly <laughs> what the stadium looks like. The, it's like the four big spiral pillars on either side, the really high roofs, uh, not an oval shape, not a circular shape, very blocky, huge, big, steep link stands rising up into the Milanese sky. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> uh, sounds great. We should try and go there before Milan move out. Before but Inter will be there. And in fact, neither of them are moving anywhere by the sounds of Gabriele yeah. there. doesn't seem too convinced. It sounds like a lot of plans. I think a lot of plans in Italy for, uh, for these kind of things get floated. A lot of kites are flown. Mm. Or maybe they're not always uh, followed through upon. But we're finished this show. Uh, we will leave you with a reminder to listen to show number one. We have podcasts already out there today, including Super Bowl Chat with Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe, who is quite a happy man. Uh, serious repercussions there for the Seattle Seahawks and their failure to close out a game that should have really been closed out in the Super Bowl last night if you stayed up to watch that one. We had Six Nations build up and Ushin McConville and Anthony Moyles on the opening weekend of the Allianz Football League. Thanks very much for being here today, man. Thank you. Um, I mean, it is your job. You are actually obliged to be here, but thank I mean, you very much. Good book holidays, I suppose. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know. Other than that, I'm going to be here. You on. can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, and you can check out irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts for some of the other programs. Thanks a million. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.